So today we're joined by a very special guest, Josh Stewart, who is an experienced mountain guide based right here in Seattle. Josh is not only an accomplished guide with years of experience leading clients on mountaineering and outdoor objectives, but he's also a seasoned climber who's climbed in the Alps, summited the Eiger, summited 50-some of the 100 Bulgers in Washington, and a ton of other things. In this podcast, we're going to be getting into the challenges he faces as a guide, how to prepare for a specific mountaineering objective, the most common mistake beginner mountaineers make, and so much more. If you're new to mountaineering and climbing, you're absolutely going to love this podcast. Josh is basically going to be your mentor for this whole thing. And now I apologize in advance for my audio on this. It doesn't sound too bad, but I'm really working to try and make this really good for you guys. I think what I'm just going to do is get a really good shotgun mic that I can plug directly into my good camera. Regardless, I think you know, my guest's audio is better than mine, which is like, what the heck? I'm the podcast host. So yeah, the intro got cut off because I had to switch webcams on the fly and it's almost like I have to prioritize either having a good webcam or good audio. And I thought I was prioritizing audio at this time, but it was a little bit subpar. So I'm still working on it. Thank you for being patient with me and let's get into the podcast. So today we're going to be kind of talking all about kind of guiding. And matter of fact, the the way we met was actually getting guided. Uh, well, Josh was actually teaching us how to do crevasse rescue is how it went. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, Josh, do you remember anything about that? that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Time? It was, uh, I do remember that. And it was actually a pretty unique uh, crevasse rescue course. And it's because you guys... I think it was September that you guys wanted to do your crevasse rescue course, and uh, yeah. there was there was no snow left in Suquamish Pass, and so I did a little bit of a networking around the guiding community to find that. And somebody on our team had a picture on their phone from climbing a nearby peak that happened to have a picture of Snow Lake in it. And if you zoomed in really far, like 10x, <laughs> you could see this little patch of snow uh, at the north end of Snow Lake. And, um, you know, just having some familiarity with the scale, we figured that was probably like a 40, 50 foot snow cliff that dropped into the lake. And, uh, I think it was what, like two hours of hiking just to get in there. But, uh, we got in there and sure enough, they had a nice snow cliff to use as the crevasse edge. It's pretty sweet. We had like a two hour approach. What did you wear to the two hour approach for shoes? Oh yeah, that's right. (laughs) I think I just forgot my trail running shoes so i brought crocs yeah that's right <laughs> this is how i knew josh was the real deal by the way He's, dude this like approach was you know for a regular person like this would have been like a a difficult hike i think you know i mean we were doing off trail stuff I remember coming back from that thing and we're slipping and sliding trying to get through the brush and stuff and it was no it was some off trail travel yeah. yeah yeah it's it's all it's all relative you know it's all relative yeah yeah no it it was really cool yeah yeah so we did our crevasse rescue training over a yeah avalanche debris field and it was do you remember the do you remember the uh the first screw up that you saw us have <laughs> how could you forget this um oh yeah you brought you guys brought micro traction spikes not crampons i think that was one yeah. of the things i remember yeah yeah, yeah we brought trail runners yeah, uh-huh. we brought trail runners. Yeah, I think we brought universal crampons though. But uh-huh. it was like we put crampons or we on yeah, trail, runner, trail runners. Yeah. 
and we were like, yeah, what were we doing? So, but it, anyway, man, that was, that was how we met. And he, Josh pretty much blew my mind that day of like all the things that I didn't know. So, yeah. So I would love to just pick your brain about being a guide. So I have a, a series of questions and we'll mm-hmm. kind of see where we're going with that. But Sure. But I would before say, you get into that, you know, the first yeah. thing that comes to mind when you're saying all that, you're like, you know, this is the most experienced guy I've ever had on the show and blah, 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 and all this stuff. But it's, it's all relative. Like, I feel a little bit of imposter syndrome sometimes. And I think that's relevant to share with everybody who's watching. I'm sure everyone feels that a little bit. Because what do I do on a regular basis? I hang out with a whole bunch of other guides. You know, I go train with a bunch of other guides. And so relative to them, I just feel like the little baby in the room. So it's, it's, it's just, it's all relative, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, we need to, we need to, you know, to me, but, and then, and then like, to me, it's like, this dude's like a black belt in mountaineering, you know, Mm -hmm. especially like when we went down to Sahali and stuff like that. Uh, that was like the last big adventure of the, of the year for me. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie, man. We, so Sahali is is a boulder and Josh, you have done it. You've done it before. Right. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so you get up to the top and you got a big wrap down, a couple rappels down. And I was like, dang, man. But like, I was all jacked up, ready to do it. But I'm so glad you came with us on that trip because you were very, you were very helpful, like way more. I feel more confident with people that I trust is what I'm saying, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. type of thing like that. And so I think that's like one of the things like, so as a guide, how, um, yeah, how do how do you go about what are the challenges you face? Like what are the biggest challenges you face as a guide leading people that you don't know into the mountains? Kind of doing something that maybe people would consider as risky. How how and what are some of the big challenges with that, do you think? So specific to people I don't know. Um, the biggest challenge is knowing what they're capable of and knowing how long things are going to take. And so, and the way you mitigate the risk of that becoming a problem is we'll do like a, a shakedown. You know, I'm not going to go do a super challenging objective that has a really long approach and hard climbing and and big days with someone I haven't climbed with before. So I might take them on, you know, a half day trip that involves just a, like a little bit of alpine scrambling, a little bit of exposure before I take them on a big, long alpine objective. And so, I, I, you know, what could become a big challenge on a big day, we just don't even let it get there because we, do, we won't take somebody new on a big thing like that without, without having done that. Now, that being said, in my own personal climbing, it's totally different. You know, I've taken a friend who his first time alpine climbing, we did a Liberty Bell Traverse, which was a 20 pitch day, five different peaks, and it took us like 18 hours to do it. Wow. So it's just like, that that's getting a little crazy, but I would, I would never do that with a client. It's very much more conservative. Yeah. Right on. Was that uh was that the guy we went to Sahali with that you did that with? No, but that, that that's the kind of guy that we, you know, we've done similar adventures together. Me and Svet have done, have done similar adventures together. We're just, you know, having a, having a good old suffer fest. I lost you. Oh, there we go. Good. You so you and Svet have had similar adventures to that. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That so that's like kind of the, the how do you like it's gotta be hard for you as a guide right now 
to like, is it, is it tough as a guide right now to find people like kind of at your level of like what you want to do and the things that you're interested in? How do you, and like, when you do try to find those types of people, how do you vet them out to be like a good partner? Like what, what are you looking for in like a good, like, I guess, climbing partner, mountain partner, things like that. Oh, you just mean like for recreational climbing, regular, um, you know, all my regular. free time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the important thing is we have like similar objectives. Like, um, there are some climbers out there that, you know, they climb really hard and they'd be a good partner if I wanted to climb something that's really, really hard. Um, there's partners out there that are specific to the objective. So like if I want to do an ice climbing objective that, you know, I'm going to have to find somebody who's good at ice climbing. Um, but I think for me, like right now, what's important to me is when I, when I have, when I have days off, I want to go see terrain that I've never seen before. And I've seen most of the short approach closer to the road type uh, wilderness areas in Washington. And so the only things that are left are really, really remote areas that are going to require putting in a ton of miles. Um, And, you know, I don't, I work a full-time railer job. I don't just guide. Guiding is just a weekend job for me. And so I've got limited amount of time. And so being able to pack away a lot of miles, and we're talking like, you know, 50 miles in a weekend is the kind of partner that I'm looking for because those are the objectives that I want to do. Got it. So they they almost have to have they got to be pretty well rounded, but they really need to have a lot of that endurance piece to like mm-hmm. kind of put up with the suck and like the the mm-hmm. the type two fun that yep. goes along with a lot of this stuff. Yeah, That's exactly right. Yep, got to have a good attitude about it for sure. Would you say that attitude is <clears throat> one of the most common things people overlook when they're when they're looking for partners or they're just by themselves on like going for a mountaineering objective. Do you think like that's one of the things that could kind of make or break things? Yeah, it's definitely something that, that would make or break. Um, I don't know that I would highlight that as being something that often gets overlooked. Um, but it is, it is a very important thing to have a good attitude. Yeah. I've been on trips where, people that have a bad attitude brings, it brings down the whole, but I mean, it just brings down the whole vibe. Oh yeah. And, it, and, and, and that's tough. I mean, cause like you, you already know you're out there to suffer. Like it's art. That's already kind of like an unwritten code. Like you're probably going to suffer mm-hmm. at some point. And so when somebody's complaining about the suffering, it kind of makes it just doesn't make it as fun. Yeah. Type of yeah. If, if you don't like suffering, then you shouldn't even get into mountaineering. You gotta, you gotta be down for a little bit of that. I mean, there's a lot of reward, obviously, you know, that the ROI is really, really high, but, um, but you also gotta understand that you're going to be suffering some. Why do you think people are able to put up with that suffering in return for the reward? Um, why do we think are able to put up with it? This is off the script, man. I didn't like pre-contemplate this question. So I'm going to have to think about that for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, I think that that is a, that is a hard question, but I think, you know, I mean, I think that people always have to have some type of purpose. It's something that they're going after. I think mountaineering is like the quintessential, like you get to this peak, you know, like you're going like, you're working hard to this peak and like you finally get to the summit and it's like how a lot of people talk about hitting goals and things like that, but that's uh-huh. like actually what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. This could easily turn into like a philosophical side trail that we could spend an hour on just that topic alone. 
Um, it's actually something I've been meaning to talk to you about on um, just have you having just quit your job and do all, doing all that stuff and trying to figure out what you know how you're going to make the the outdoor thing work for you. Yeah. Um, but without getting too too deep into it, I think mountaineering is a little microcosm for you know every everyday life. You know, you get yeah. to this objective that you've been building towards over and over and over again. Then once you get to the top, you realize, well now what what's the next thing there's always going to be a next thing and you have this expectation that once you get to that objective then you'll be happy you know mm-hmm. once you get that house then you'll be happy once you graduate from college then you'll be happy um you know and you know i think a really good analogy is like coming back from a trailhead you know you're walking back to the trail and you've been out for four days and your feet hurt and your back hurt and you just can't think about anything but getting to the trailhead and getting to the car and then once you get to that car, you're like, oh gosh, that's the that's the best looking Prius I've ever seen. You know, you could kiss it. And then you get back, and then what's the next thing you're thinking about, right? For the next half an hour, you're driving back into town, and uh, you got your boots off, and everything feels great. But now you're thinking about a burger and a beer back in town. And then you get that burger, and by that point, it's eleven o'clock at night, and you got a three hour drive back home. And the only thing you can think about for the next three hours is your shower and your bed, right? So it's just like throughout that entire day, what's happened, you you weren't present for one moment of that day because you were constantly mm-hmm. thinking about what's happening next and what's happening next. And so that's kind of the one of the great things about what I found a lot of people love about climbing is that when you're doing that technical stuff, when you're engaged mm-hmm. in rock climbing or ice climbing or something that's objective, you're forced to be present. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to meditate to be present. You're forced to. You know, you can't be thinking about, um, you know, a report that's due at work on Monday when you're rock climbing, you know. So it forces presence, but it's on those down times when you're suffering and you're you are wishing you were somewhere else that it becomes really challenging. And that's where you just got to be where you are. And that's kind of the. Yeah, we've talked. We've that's my takeaway. I think we talked. I think we talked about that at Sahali once, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great point because. There is nothing else you can really think about when you're on the wall climbing a technical mm-hmm. route. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, you nailed that. But like when you're backpacking in, you're going to the approach. It's like <laughs> you could be swimming in ideas. Yeah. And there, there, there's flies and mosquitoes and all of this stuff. And you're just right. like, you, you don't want to be there in that moment. That's when it's really challenging. Do you ever get where when you get home after an extended trip, that you, at least for a couple weeks, at least for a week for sure, like I feel more grateful for the stuff that I have around me, a bed, mm-hmm. I don't have to filter my water and all like this stuff. And for me, I sometimes I feel like that is a reason why I go and do these extended trips because I come back and then I start to be way more grateful than I ever was before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more recently I have. I remember when I was younger, you know, as a teenager, and every single trip we would literally be planning the next trip on the drive back home because it's just like one right after another. Yeah, yeah, and that that can get into a tireless <clears throat> loop, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well let let's get back on script here. Yeah, <laughs> let's get back into it. <clears throat> so we we did we did kind of discuss one of the or. We talked about attitude, right? What else do you think are common things that people overlook when they are prepping or when they are, yeah, when they're just doing a mountaineering objective? Mm-hmm. Let's say, uh, let's say two different ones. So you have like a Mount Rainier, you know, like a, like a slog 
type one versus, and then maybe like an Alpine one that we would be going on later this mm-hmm. year. Sure. Yeah. So, um, generally I think, think the thing that comes to mind that gets often overlooked is gear. People always bring way too much stuff that they don't really need. Um, and they aren't really well versed at how to pack it yet. And so it's ends up becoming this overstuffed giant 80 liter backpack with a bunch of things on the outside flopping around. And it's, it's a, it's a yard sale. It's just kind of a junk show. Um, but it's also a lot of weight and that bogs down you and that adds up over the day and you get more and more tired. Uh, and then every time you need something out of that pack, you got to rifle through everything to get to it. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, if you went on vacation and, you know, had this giant overstuffed suitcase and you got to get to a t-shirt, but in order to get to that t-shirt, you have to unpack every single thing in your bag to get to it. And when that you, when you have to do that every time you need something, it just like, it hurts the experience. So it's the same thing. So really figure out what you need and why you're bringing every single thing in your pack, like know why you're bringing it and really analyze and be kind of brutal on it. Like, do I really need to bring this? Cause it's not, it's not adding to this experience. So kind of be as minimal as you can is what mm-hmm. you're saying. Yep, yeah, absolutely. hundred percent agree. What would you say to this, this question? Cause this is what I always get. Well, I would rather be safe than sorry. So I'd rather bring, I'd rather bring this, this, that, and the other thing and a full med kit and this and that. And you know what I'm saying? Three different coats in case one gets dunked in the water. Yeah. How would you, how would you, what would you say to people with that? Well, then, I mean, you better bring literally like the kitchen sink with you then, because I think it's, it's really just kind of a, it's an excuse to not analyze what you're doing and ask why it's an excuse to not really think about what you're doing. Um, there's a lot of things that can be prepped for. There's a lot of things that can be planned for. There's a lot of things that you can, uh, use a process of elimination to determine whether or not you're going to need that. Right. If you're in the, if you're in the middle of July and the forecast is totally stable with no precipitation for the next week, you know, do I really need to bring a rain jacket? Mm-mm. No, because it is not going to rain, right? Mm-hmm. So you you know, you protect against things that you know you try to prevent things that are likely from happening, and you try to mitigate things that could happen by bringing gear with you. I love that. I love that. Yeah, so protect against things that you know not. So if you're going into a client, so you bring a rain jacket if you're going. End of September in the PMW, most likely, because it mm-hmm. can be a 50-50 toss-up. And a lot of times when there's a 40% chance of rain, it rains. Yes, exactly. You know what I'm uh-huh. saying? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're totally right. Like, knowing the climate, researching that stuff, see the extended weather, checking the weather before. Mm-hmm. What do I absolutely need to have versus what can I get by with, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. What about then, so, okay, so what about then, like, the Alpine thing that we're going to be doing, which just we're going to be doing like uh, Grand Teton, you know, Gannett Peak, that type of stuff, Cirque, Cirque of the Tower. So a little more technical. Mm-hmm. Is it kind of the same thing where bring what bring only what you kind of need or what else? Uh, what are, What's something that someone might overlook like me going into that being maybe a first timer, kind of a rookie going into that situation? 
So the concept is the same. I mean, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. The only time that I'm bringing a bunch of stuff that I probably don't need is if I'm like car camping because it, it doesn't matter. Right. I'm not carrying those, those ounces. Right. Um, so it's the same. It doesn't matter where, if I'm carrying it on my back, I'm going to bring only what I, I know that I'm shit. That's appropriate to bring. I'm not going to say need because there's things that I really hope that I don't need that I bring, you know, I bring a, I bring a, an SOS beacon in case I need to be rescued. Right. Um, you know, I bring a first aid kit, even though I'm n- probably not going to get hurt. Right. Um, but the things that have a very, it's basically the same thing with bringing gear as it is when making a risk assessment in the mountains, right? You have a likelihood versus consequences. And if I have, you know, a high likelihood, but low consequences, then that's not maybe a problem. Or if I have a low likelihood, but high mm-hmm. consequence, maybe that's not a problem. But if you get into like a medium of, of both of those or high of both of those, you know, if that number gets to where I usually put that, that scale on a, on a, um, I usually put each one of those on a scale of one to five and then add them together. And if I get into six, so three on each scale, then I, you know, you got to change your decision. So it's the same thing with, with gear. What's the likelihood of you needing something versus what's the consequences of not having it? I love that. So it's almost, yeah. So you have to have one or the other. Yeah. So, so you're ranking it on like an actual, it's almost like a little, so if you need it, or so you're looking at it as, okay, consequence, if the consequence is high, but I probably won't run into that, I probably am not going to bring it. Mm-hmm. thing but if it's but yeah if it but you're in the middle of that mm-hmm. if it meets in the middle of that where pretty good co- you know pretty high consequences and pretty high likelihood that it's going to happen i'm going to bring that type of gear and that's gonna yeah that's something that would be appropriate for that adventure mm-hmm. so that's that's a really good tip for everybody listening what are the yeah little con what is that called is that actually like i feel like i've read that somewhere too where it's i actually think it was in the avalanche book that i have Something about um, yeah, I'm sure there's a risk assessment tool in the Avalanche. Yeah. I'm not sure if it uses that exact scale, but um, yeah, it's going to be something similar. It's weighing your likelihood versus consequences, and kind of adding them together. Love it. Cool. Perfect. Perfect. What are so as being a mountain guide? What are some significant things someone wouldn't know about a mountain guide, but is extremely important to you as the guide? Hmm. I think that the meditative process for me, kind of like we talked about earlier, that's what's most important. Spend a lot of time trying to be present in the mountains, right? Because mm-hmm. you can't, you've ton, we've all both had tons of experiences in the mountains over the years, right? Uh, and they were all awesome, but we can't relive them, right? And we got tons of plans. You and I got some plans to climb this summer, and I got a whole bunch of plans to do a bunch of other stuff. Um, in the coming years, but we're not guaranteed those, right? The only moment we have is what's right in front of us. So, and that wasn't always the case. I didn't always have that mindset, but lately that's become like the most important thing is when I'm there, I'm, I'm present. Uh, and sometimes that can be challenging because maybe, you know, when I'm guiding, I'm doing a lot of things that I've done over and over and over. So it's not so much, there's not really any novelty there. It's nothing new. Um, so it makes it even more important to just be present with what's in front of you 
Okay, that that was that was going to be my follow up question because that was a really good point. So as a mountain guide, you're doing routes that you've done a dozen times or something mm-hmm. or so before, and so one of the things that you're kind of in, in, implying is that now you're actually really taking the time to challenge yourself to be present in that mm-hmm. in that experience. Yeah, what do you think it, it has came from? Do you think that place or that mindset has came? as you are, not that you're old, but you're getting, as you, as we start aging a little bit, you know, we're getting older. Do you think it's a, a mix of that with the guiding that you've got it from? Or what was kind of like the breakthrough with that for you? Because I haven't, it, it wasn't until we were on Sahali and we were chilling in the sun there mm-hmm. right after the glacier coming down mm-hmm. when you were kind of talking about that. And we mm-hmm. just kind of chill. We just like chilled out for like, half hour, 45 minutes, like just in the sun. And it was, it was awesome. M- me by myself, I probably would have never done that. I would just, be yeah. like, oh, pff, I'm going to the car. Right. What was like the breakthrough for you with that? That's a, uh, that's a big, that's a big question. Um, I'll answer it pretty, uh, you know, short briefly this time, but, um, it's, a, that's a big question. Um, the it, to the kind of the first part of your question, um, I'd say yes, it is definitely um, due to how I mean, getting older and more experienced. Because I think you need to experience a series of things in your life firsthand of working toward a goal and then accomplishing that goal and then having that feeling of what's next. And you need to do that several times throughout your life before you realize that there's always going to be a what's next. And that, you know, you're never going to yeah. just be happy when you get there. You're never going to be yeah. because happiness mm-hmm. isn't tied to that objective, right? It's completely independent. Mm-hmm. So that's that first question. Um, and then the second part of it, I think you asked if there was some sort of like breakthrough moment. Um, mm-hmm. And there actually was. My uh, In 2019, my wife and I were on our way to New Zealand. And we had a layover in Hawaii. And we're laying on the beach there. And... Um, Adam Sandler's filming a, a movie just like right, right in view across the beach at a hotel and we're hanging out in the sun and it's, we're in paradise, right? Well, up into that trip, I'd been training for an ice climbing course and I'd been trying to get a bunch of climbing in so I could get strong and so I'd be ready for the course. And it would just wasn't cold enough in Washington. So I just didn't get like hardly any climbing in. So we're laying on the beach and all this is happening. I'm like scrolling on Instagram and I see that it's like getting cold and I'm seeing all these things posted on this, on these ice climbing pages. And I'm like, God damn it. Like it's, I'm missing it. I'm missing all the ice climbing opportunity. And my wife looks over at me and she's like, dude, what's wrong with you? What the hell is wrong with you? You know, you're, you're in paradise, you're in Hawaii and you're off, you're off somewhere else. Um, and that, I was just like, that kind of, it really hit me. And I was like, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. What what's going on? What is this? Yeah. Um, so you were like you were in par- you were in paradise yeah. in the sun, the nice sun, and now you know, and some somewhere that people would kill to get to, especially yep. when you're in Washington, freaking yep. for the winter, and you don't have yep. any any sun, right? And mm-hmm. but your mind was somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is a really unique time. Like our generation is really kind of in a unique point having to deal with this because we, you know, we experienced the world pre-social media and now we're experiencing it with social media, but it hasn't been around long enough 
for us to know as a society how much of an impact it's going to make on us. And so that's one of those points where we're realizing that sort of impact that it is making on us. And so we just got to be careful with how we allow it to participate in our lives. Yeah, really good points. And I have gone through, uh, I haven't had the breakthrough that you had because that, that was profound and something that I'm, I'm, I am wanting to get more of. One, I really resonate with the fact that there's always another thing. I was just talking to my fiance three hours before here and I was talking about her. How I was like, I don't feel like I have like a goal this year, like a big, big goal. Cause I don't know where I'm going to be at and where mm-hmm. I'm going to be. And after my hundred miler, I, I was like depressed for like weeks. Cause I really, cause that was like the pit. I'm like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, yeah. I'm not going to do any more running probably. I, mean, I don't want to yeah. do 200. Like, like that's uh-huh. just way too much running and way too much time. But like, what is my new goal? And I, I struggle with that for a long time because usually like you were saying, I would already have another goal lined up in the back of my mind as I'm doing the activity. Yeah. But the hundred required so much that I was just like, Oh, I'm going to be, you know, but no, totally. The, it's not until now that I'm starting to like reap the benefits of the hundred, like uh-huh. four or five months later, which is really weird. And then to your point about social media, I like, I actually have, so I still will follow people, but there's people that I will not watch their stories. Yep. I, I can uh-huh. only watch their stories if I have had a, a, a good weekend. Like, as uh-huh. in like, I was already outside <laughs> doing shit, like uh-huh. hanging stuff out. If not, if I was at home doing work and I, I can't look at their stories. Yeah. Do you ever feel like that? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I understand. Yeah, yeah I understand. Yeah. I definitely have had many moments um, be, before that breakthrough moment, and some afterwards, but not as much. Of um, just never ever feeling good enough, like always seeing everyone else's yeah. highlight reel, comparing my life to their life, and just no matter what I did, never good enough. Um, because everyone's, you know, if you collectively somebody is always on vacation, right? Always. And by comparison, it can make you feel, you feel like your life is, you know, dull and boring. Um, but everyone's probably doing that. They're probably looking at your feed and they're thinking the exact same thing about you. Mm -hmm. So, right. But that's, that's, I mean, that's, we should just do a podcast on this topic, honestly. Yeah. Well, some other time I have, 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 uh, (laughs) talked about doing our, what, what did you call it? The Monday, Something. The Monday Mountain Guide podcast or something. Yeah, Mountain Guide yeah. Mondays. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. It was going to be a, a, an exclusive segment. I love it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that we might have to shelf that actually. Social media and the outdoors, coming from yeah. the outdoor content yeah. creator. Yeah, Me- mental health. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, the yeah. irony there yeah. is awesome. I love it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I don't feel like I necessarily like try. I don't like post to like make people feel bad though. I feel like of most of my stuff is like, like making, trying to make people laugh or educated. Yeah. But like, if I am doing like an adventure, I'll, I'll like post that or whatever. But to me, it's almost like, well, I have to have a little bit of credibility. Like uh-huh. what shit I'm doing, you know, but yeah, there's, you know, what's funny is like, it's not to keep going down this, but the term FOMO mm-hmm. and FOMO mm-hmm. has always been, I was just like, Oh, FOMO is like, when people are going partying or whatever. No FOMO. There's an outdoor FOMO, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and for sure. Yeah. So, anyway, all right. Back to some guide stuff. Yeah. <laughs> on these trails. 
Wait, now we have new <laughs> topics. <laughs> exactly. So, Write them down. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. <laughs> All right. So, okay. I kind of, I kind of got into this a little bit, but I want to get into it a little bit more. So biggest challenges you face as a guide and how do you approach these challenges to ensure the safety and satisfactions of your clients? So like when you're, when you are, uh, actually I'm more interested in like when you are on the trip with mm -hmm. four or five people, whoever you're, you're guiding, what are some of the most common and the biggest challenges you as a guide encounter? Like, is it, is it having to deal with people that are arguing that in the group, they don't know each mm. other or, you know, mm. wife. And I think you told us, you know, there was a story once where like, you know, people, you, you almost have to be like the referee. You have to be, mm. you are like the person that is, I don't know, you're the guide. So mm. how do you deal with that type of stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, I totally had something completely different in mind when you first asked this yeah. question and I'll, yeah. I'll have to circle back to that. But uh, as you kind of elaborated on that, some other things did come to mind. Um, and yes, I've, I don't very often have clients that are that are challenging. Um, there is one who came to mind who just like refused to do what I was telling her to do. And what I was telling her to do was standard practice uh, in the industry for, for safety. Um, it was doing an extended repel. And, um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with that, you attach your tether to your harness and you uh, attach it away from your belay device that way you can put a backup on it um, with a, a friction hitch and that friction hitch won't get sucked up into the belay device and defeat the backup and so you extend it to create that separation um but yeah she was uh, arguing me with me about that and that's a safety thing right if, there, if the, there's a dispute that has to do with safety they're just going to do it and I'm not going to be, you're trying to be polite, but I'm not going to be polite about it. Like it's, it's going to happen. They're going to do it. Sure. And it's just, there's no negotiating about it. You're just going to do it. Um, but if it's something like whether or not we're going to go to the summit or if we're going to stay here and learn skills, I usually kind of use the group to do that. I allow to do that by consensus. And it's because there's not, there's no safety involved. You know, if it's, if, if it isn't a safety measure, it's not, has nothing to do with that. Um, then I'll let the group decide. And it's just basically, it's just majority, majority rules. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, uh, interesting. Okay. So like barring any kind of like, you know, conditions or bad yep. weather or something like right. that, it, you're just like, Hey, you guys talk it over. And, and, and so I think what people don't know is, uh, is a lot of times, like you can get paired up with people that you don't, you don't know. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's so, an interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be very interesting. So now it's almost like a uh, like freaking the amazing race or some, some kind of, you know, some kind of reality challenge. Like, yep. Man, there's the next thing. Reality guiding. I mean, man, you could really I mean, I feel like I mean, you know, how are these mm -hmm. people going to work together to get to this? I mean, it is kind of working together, especially when you're on a rope team or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. I had uh, one situation where we, we kind of had both of those things that I've mentioned previously, where we were almost to the summit and the weather was not cooperating the way it was forecast at all. It got really bad, really rapidly. Um, and I just instantly made the decision we are, we're turning around right now. Um, this is not going to get any better and we got to leave before it gets dangerous. And so we turned around, um, but we had one extra day. And one of the group members wanted to go to the summit. 
the other two did not. And so I just like, all right, well, the weather's going to be good. You guys, I'll leave you guys alone. You hash it out. Tell me what we're going to do. And uh, we'll make a plan from there. And they ended up deciding to, to bail and, and not go to the summit. Um, they went they went home for, for Father's Day instead, I think. But um, yeah. but yeah, like wow. that. That'd be crushing to me <laughs> as, as, as a, uh, as a client. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately they were all related. This was a brother or sister and then the mm-hmm. sister's husband. So that's, Got that's it. a little easier to deal with when you're all related. Um, if, if you're not, then yeah, it's definitely can be harder. That's one of the challenges of, of like being a client is, um, you know, we, we try to, first thing a guide service is going to do is they're going to try and screen people for fitness and make sure that people are fit enough and, um, and find an appropriate objective for you to do. So if you're signing up for something and then they ask you your fitness level and it doesn't quite match up with what you're trying to do, then they're going to, you know, put you in an appropriate place. Yeah. yeah. So you try to get screened for that in the beginning. Um, and then the guide will have a pretty good idea within the, first 30 to 60 minutes of hiking of if that client is going to be fit enough to go to the top. Um, and if, uh, if they're not, we'll try to help them understand that and understand that they are part of a group, part of a team and, um, make sure that they are feeling, they're feeling up for it. Um, because if they're going to find out that they can't make it, it needs to happen like pretty close to camp because if it doesn't, if it happens, you know, mid route on a glacier, we got to turn the entire team around. Yeah, this, that, and that is something that I, like being a guide, you know, as being someone that, I I mean, I've guided my brother and stuff like that, you know, but not like an official guide, but it it is interesting, like your, your, like your thoughts versus like the client's thoughts are so totally different. Mm -hmm. Like you already know that you can do this route. You've done it a hundred times you are more focused on them, whereas they're focused on themselves, right? And getting yep. to the summit, you are just totally just focused on them and managing this group uh, because you already know that you can manage yourself. You already know that you can manage like the safety aspects and things like that. But now it's kind of comes down to the point where, like you said, if you get a client that is struggling, but now they're struggling halfway up or three fourths of the way up, that's dangerous. Whereas you need to kind of suss that out at the start because yep. if you don't, the more, the higher you get, the harder it's going to be to get down, the longer it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we do, we do pretty effective yeah. at yeah. figuring out beforehand if it's going to yeah. work out or not. Cause like I said, we, we know, like I'll do Mount Baker and I'll know within an hour, which clients are going to be up for the challenge and which ones are not. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. And it really isn't very many that aren't, it's very few. It's like, maybe 2% that are oh, not really? good enough. Oh, yeah. really? Interesting. Yeah. I actually would have thought it would have been more, but well, it, it, you may have different statistics with different guides or different companies. Um, and I'm not saying that's a, that's a company wide statistic for us, but that's just been my experience. And I would say for, for my clients that I've guided, it's about 2%. I mean, Hey, they, they got skin in the game in, in terms of cash. They, that not mm-hmm. only, you know, most of them are probably flown out there. They've, they got a lot of rap, lot wrapped up in this and when more people have skin mm-hmm. in, more skin in the game they're more apt to take it a little more seriously maybe mm-hmm. do it a little training and things like mm-hmm. that yeah yep. yeah cool. exactly
Listeners, let me ask you this. Have you ever left a piece of really important gear behind on one of your trips? Or have you been so scattered with where you put your notes for your trips that you kind of forgot a critical piece of information because it was something that you wrote down on a notepad that you didn't bring with you? I have a solution for you and it's completely free. It's my free Notion Outdoor Hiking and adventure trip planner so go in the show notes below grab it for yourself it's completely free and keep building we'll see you later how do you combat your own summit fever so so for people that don't know summit fever is just like you know it's it sounds which is just you pretty much everything clouds out and you just want to get to the summit. I'm sure that you have already worked this mostly out of your system through the years. What, what was that process like for you? How did that go? Yeah. So, I mean, for the most part, when I'm guiding, there is no summit fever whatsoever because I've been to the top and yeah. if, if the, if the clients don't want to go, I'm happy to turn around, you know, it just means I get to go get home earlier and go to bed faster. You know, it's just like, it's not a big deal. So there's no summit fever, but th- that's not true for everything. Cause some, some of these things, there's, there's some climbs that I've never climbed before. And so I'm guiding people on it and I want to get to the top just as much as they do. And so there, there's definitely a, a drive to do that. And we've touched on a couple of the things that I do to um, combat that already. You know, um, one of them is being present, right? Not attaching happiness to getting to the top, right? It's just, you know, it's not attached to anything. So being present is as one part of it. Um, and then the other part is I have my own, I set, always set a time or set aside time to go do other things. Right. So, you know, maybe I don't get to the top of this objective this time, but I have time throughout my season where I'm going to go with, with friends and we have the same, you know, objectives in mind and the same mindsets in mind. And so I can like, I can always come back and do that objective or I can always do another objective and, you know, get, cause getting to the summit, I think it is important, right? There's a lot of satisfaction of getting to the summit. Um, I mean, I'm doing the bulger list. I'm basically peak bagging, right? So getting to the top is really important. Um, and I like to like to do it fast, but so it's, that's, that's why I like to kind of set that aside uh, for a time when I can just like focus on that. Yeah. Perfect. And you, you touched on the bulgers there, which, which is a question I was going to ask you. Mm-hmm. And how is your, how has your progress been with that? And I guess for the listeners that may be, will probably be outside of Washington. Can you tell them a little bit about what that, what they are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I've done about half of them. I think like 55 nice. of the 100. Um, they're the one, the top 100 peaks in Washington. And what makes them unique is that, uh, and from Washington, your you know your mountains are starting at sea level, whereas compared to like Colorado, you know the 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 plain that you're starting with is about a mile high, and so you might have a fourteen thousand foot peak, but if it starts at five or six thousand, then it's not as tall as some of the peaks in Washington because we start at sea level. So um, the the prominence and the elevation gain is is a lot for Washington peaks. Um, and then also, you know, the Pacific Northwest is unique in that we have a lot of glaciers. 
whereas most of the other lower 48 states don't have any glaciers, or if they do, they're mostly extinct and there's just not much to it. So you have glacier crossings, um, and then the glaciers cut the the mountains, and so you have really rugged terrain, like much more rugged terrain in Washington than you're going to have in in some of the other states. And uh, you also have a lot of remoteness. There isn't as many roads in the North Cascades as there are in some of these other mountain ranges. And so when you combine all of those things together, um, it requires you to travel long distances. It requires you to have a lot of different skills. You know, you got to be able to, to scramble. You got to be able to climb. You got to be comfortable exposure. You got to be able to cross glaciers. You got to be able to travel long distances and all those things. Um, and so that's what makes those mountains particularly challenging to do all of them is because you got to you got to deal with all of those different challenges. What an exceptional way to explain the bulgers. That was <laughs> freaking awesome. That was such a good, that actually gets me really stoked <laughs> for the bulgers. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. sweet, but you also see, you know, they're so spread out everywhere. You see a really good yeah. amount of the state. Like after you've done that, you can be like, Yes, I've seen Washington, you know. I think that there's I think that it's not an accident that a lot of really good mountaineers come from Washington or mm -hmm. live in in Seattle. I didn't understand mm -hmm. that before I kind of moved here and got involved with that type of climbing scene even until 2-3 years ago really. And you're totally right. I mean, you got a hundred of these peaks a lot of them can be super technical. It's all alpine type stuff where you're got to know all these just like you said all these different facets of things that you've probably learned somewhere else like maybe you're a good climber but now you've got to learn how to do crevasse rescue and you got to be good with endurance you got to know how to backpack some of these things like it's just the conglomeration of all this stuff yeah. as opposed to like a 14er that you can drive up to in colorado <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Opposite extremes, right? There's some hard stuff in Colorado too, but just the in for in sure. general, the average is for, is that there's a lot more of those challenges in the Bulgers. Yeah. yeah. So sure. so that's so that's one of your goals is to you know eventually at at one point complete the hundred. Mm -hmm. What is what's another one of your biggest most audacious goals that you have? That's maybe this year or you know your next five years, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the most audacious. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when I was reading your question earlier, actually, the first thing that popped in my mind was just finishing my house. It's definitely the most audacious. Goal <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, uh, uh, but as it relates to to climbing and adventuring, um, I got a bunch of stuff. There's a lot of things on my my to do list. I mean, I want to finish that. Uh, I want to climb all the 14ers in Colorado and in California. Uh, I want to climb the the highest point in all the western states, so basically just everything west of Colorado. Um, I want to do the high points in all the national parks, um, and then globally, globally, I want to. There, there's several distinctly different climbing cultures throughout the world, right? Like if you go to Yosemite and hang out there for a couple of weeks, you'll find that there's a really distinct climbing culture in Yosemite. But that culture is distinctly different from, say, the culture in the Pacific Northwest, which is totally different from the culture in, like, Indian Creek, Moab area. Um, and that, you know, that's totally different from, you know, climbing McKinley, which is totally different from climbing in the Himalayas going up to Everest Base Camp, which is different from climbing down to Patagonia, 
which is different than climbing the Alps, right? So those are, they're all very distinctly different. It's not just a different rock. It's not just a different style of climbing, but the, the culture is different. You know, sometimes you're staying in a hut system. Sometimes you're allowed to fly helicopters into where you're going. Whereas like Washington, you know, you can't fly any helicopters in North Cascades. You got to hike wherever you're going. So it's like, I want to go experience all those different climbing cultures for what makes them unique to that area. I love it. That's my biggest goal. So it's almost like you, you get to explore the area, but you also get to explore, you also get to be immersed in that culture as well, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which which is like a little bit more than just going to Yosemite national park, right? You're actually Mm -hmm. like getting involved and immersing yourself into that very nuanced culture of that, of mm-hmm. the, almost like dirtbag climbers, right? Like in Yosemite, yeah. I think it is kind mm-hmm. of right. Yeah. Like that type of style. Yeah. But so it, if you went to Yosemite, yeah. what type of climbing are you going to do in Yosemite, right? Yeah. It would be like, it's like the, I don't know. Are you asking me? I have no yeah, idea. Yeah. Slab climbing. <laughs> I don't know. Granite. You're, no, you're going to be, you're going to be on a giant big wall sleeping in a portal edge on the side of a cliff for a oh, week yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and pooping in a bag, right? That's, that's the full experience. Yeah, that is the full experience. I'm going to, I'm going to stand this up real quick. Yes. No, I, uh, I totally agree with that. And here's one, here's one thing that I think is really cool too. And I think it kind of goes with your points of one being present, but also, like being happy basically where you're at when you are doing these goals. And that Mm -hmm. just kind of is, is the person, it's the person that you have to become in order to conquer these goals is like the thing Mm -hmm. that's actually alluring to me than actually sometimes maybe doing the goal. I think like when you are in, when you're in that training period, when you have to like, you're struggling with like those turn back moments of when you're actually doing the goal or training for the goal or something like that. Like, I think that's really what counts for a lot of, you know, the experience and the skills that you learn and like your happiness after, because you then take that, like I was saying with the bulgers, you have to be versed in all these different areas and you learn these skills by different objectives that you then carry to something else. Yeah. And that thing that you carry, you know, it develops like it's, it develops a level of confidence in being able to tackle something. You know, it's kind of, I always say, you know, in my, in my professional world, it's, you know, I've, when you've got all these different things on your resume and all these different experiences and places that you worked, it's not the individual skills that you've learned by doing all those different things. That's important. What's important is the perspective that you've gained by doing all those different things. Mm-hmm. So it changes your perspective, which changes how you can, uh, which changes, you know, your confidence and what you're able to accomplish. hundred, hundred percent. Yes. And that's why we, I think that kind of answers sometimes why we do hard things. I think that kind of mm-hmm. like wraps it up maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, dude, dude, this is really good. And I kind of have a lot of questions for you. I don't want to keep you for a long time though. We're almost <laughs> at like an hour. So you tell yeah, me I don't know. you I don't got know. a roll. I'm good for whenever. I mean, I don't know okay, how long perfect. people are going to watch this thing, but <laughs> no, I think <laughs> this keep is going to be good. Go. No, I think this is going to be okay. good. Okay. Sweet. <clears throat> So kind of going back to some of the guiding things, mm-hmm. I do have a couple of questions I still want to ask with that, which is what, if, what, what advice would you give someone that is new to mountaineering or outdoor adventure or who wants to get, um, 
maybe started in the guiding field? Like what would you, what, what advice would you give them in mm-hmm. particular? Okay. Uh, well, I, I definitely find a mentor, whether that mentor is, is a guide for sure. Yep. yep. And uh, whether they're a guide or whether they're an experienced climber, um, you want to, you want to get a mentor. And then the next part is kind of goes hand in hand with that. And it's like, you know, you want, one of the things is don't go out and buy a bunch of gear at REI. You know, you want to get with somebody who, an expert, someone who really knows what they're doing and, and ask them before you buy anything, because then you're just going to end up buying it twice. Right. And climbing is really expensive. That's one of the huge barriers to entry. <laughs> yeah. Chad's laughing because he's got a few pieces of gear in mind. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I do, man. Yeah. My rope. Ah! Uh. Stupid blue rope. Actually, we like that blue rope, though, don't we? We do kind of like that Beale Opera. I think I actually made a good purchase there. It was okay, but like, uh-huh. definitely, I you're a hundred percent right. Like uh-huh. some of the stuff I bought, I'm like, what am I doing? What was the What was the thing with the rope? Was it a fifty meter? Is that what it was? Yeah, I think it was. Okay. It was just kind of a shorter rope. We actually used it yeah. for the wrap at Sahali, uh-huh. though, and it works pretty uh-huh. well. Or did we take your rope? We what we, we brought my rope. Yeah, we brought right. We, 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 we brought, brought my rope. Yeah, because it was really short pitch, and we knew we weren't going to need the whole thing. Yeah, that yeah. was that was the thing. Yeah, but okay. So so making so finding a mentor number one, and then through that mentor, you can also like figure out what exactly do I need instead of buying this random gear that such and such on YouTube recommended, or mm-hmm. I think maybe I need type of thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because yeah. otherwise yeah. you're gonna buy it. You're gonna buy it twice. You're gonna buy it three times. Uh, you know, over you know twenty years of doing the stuff, I've bought everything, right. and um, you know you don't you don't need to. Yeah, just, yeah. just buy I, the buy the good stuff right from the beginning. I can't underscore the mentor part more. By the way, because I think mm-hmm. that I th- just think that that's so invaluable. I mean. Like I was talking about, like, you can read how to repel and you can practice repelling as much as you want, like at your house and stuff like that. But being out there when we've gone and stuff and like seeing you do that, and I have a rock climbing partner, like just getting around people that are way better than you at something, just 10x is your learning so quickly. And it's, um, I used to not be very receptive to mentors because of my ego when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I, I know how to do this. I, I, I can yeah. do this. And I don't know what that was. What Have you ever been like that? Or do you, has that ever been? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. For sure. For sure. Same reasons, you know, same reasons. Yeah. I remember yeah. like, I remember when I was in, in college and we just, there was an ice climb like 30 minutes away. It was next to this rock climbing area and I didn't have any ice climbing experience. We just rented some tools from the, you know, the college, you know, rental center. And we just went and did it. It was a three pitch ice climb. I don't know. <laughs> we got some ice screws, we got some tools and crampons and just went and did it. Um, which is I mean, it's kinda cool. It's like the Wild West. It's like, you know, more like yeah. caveman days. It's like <laughs> yeah. but you know, you are it's a it's a lot of risk and the learning curve is is long. It takes a long time. Yeah. Um, so you know, I've I learned it all the hard way. Everything that I did, I learned the hard way. Um, but I wouldn't do it that way again. Yeah. It's a, it, that, and that's a good point to underscore too, is like, it is a lot of risk. You, mm-hmm. you know, you can get by without a mentor and a lot of other things if you want to, it's just, you're going to have a slower time learning, 
But with mountaineering and things like that and climbing, if you don't have the correct mentor or any at all, that can be very risky. Yeah. 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 Well, and I did have a mentor for most of my things. My my uncle um, got me climbing when I was uh, 12, I think was the first mountaineering trip I did. And then I ended up, or maybe it was 14, doesn't matter. Um, ended up climbing Rainier with him when I was 16. Um, so he, he taught me a lot of the mountaineering school skills uh, to get me started. Uh, it was after the things, it was after that, all the other things that I added on that I just like decided I was just going to do it. Like ice climbing, I'm just like going to go learn how to do that. Or rock climbing and just like learn how to do that on my own. Interesting. What What about now as, you know, I know, I know you're not like, I know like to, to you, you, you'd like to be very humble. I get it. He, he knows his stuff though, ladies and gentlemen, I know this. Do you have a, do you have a mentor though that you look for, even though you're at this maybe like advanced stage now, like, is there anybody that you look up to currently or you maybe get advice from, or when you go on trips, maybe you're learning quite a bit from? Uh, absolutely. There's a lot of people. Um, I, I would like there to be just kind of like a go-to like formal mentor, but I don't really think mentors work that way. I don't know anybody who has like a formal mentor. Um, so that'd be cool if I did, but I generally have yeah. a lot of people like being, um, involved with the American mountain guiding association. Uh, there's lots of courses that I've taken with instructors. And so I have relationships with those instructors and I can always ask them, um, uh, ask them tips or ask them questions about whatever I have a question about. Um, but I also have the, the team that I work with at pro guide service. I got um, Martin, the owner. And I can always go to him. Um, there's some of the more senior guides that I can always go to them um, with right. things as well. So I definitely have a, a big community of people that I can share information with and, and learn from. Mm-hmm. So it's that's not, where it's I kinda, go. Instead of like maybe one so- single mentor, it's, you mm-hmm. have this giant almost mastermind of, of resources at your disposal because you're involved with all these programs and these groups yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. If, if I were um, – a recreationalist wanting to get into mountaineering, I would try to find, if you're plugged in with a big community, awesome. I would try to find someone who can give you a roadmap and tell you like, this is what you need to do. And this is what order in which you need to do it. Um, a roadmap from, you know, point A to point B, that would be the most efficient way to learn. And if you like, I mean, you know, what I actually would do recommend to, to clients a lot is uh, private trips. If you just hire a guide to take you on a private trip for a couple of days and you give them specifically what you want to learn, um, then you're not subject to other people who are, you don't know, showing up and maybe they're not on the same level. Maybe they don't have the same goals. Maybe they're not as fit. So you don't have that. Um, but you can also, that guide can cater that education specifically to you and specifically to your goals. And then, you know, that you can, if you build a rapport with that guide, you have a relationship with them. You can always mm-hmm. do several other trips with them and they can create that roadmap for you to help you get from point A to B much faster than, um, than like, you know, joining like a volunteer organization, for example. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just way more customized. You're um, again, immersed. It's just like you and the guide rather than this, uh, a mentor kind of teaching a giant group. I see that a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is fine. Like if you're strapped for money and things like that or, or whatever, wherever situation you're in, but it's kind of a difference between how fast you want to learn the skills. It, it's mm-hmm. the time, the mm-hmm. time piece that you'd be paying for. Yeah. Um, cool. 
Cool. Yeah, exactly. In those big group situations, like that's really common in when when the the goal is the mountain, right? The peak. So like if you're climbing Rainier, for instance, it's really common just throw a bunch of people onto onto a rope team. And it's basically like summit manufacturing, right? They're just manufacturing summits. They're putting as many people through that program as they possibly can to get a bunch of people to summit because the demand is really, really high to climb Mount Rainier, for instance. Um but what we're talking about is, you know, the the objective might not necessarily be, or the primary objective may not necessarily be to go to the summit. The primary objective is to learn. And so if that's the objective, then it's totally different. We cater it to specifically what that individual wants to take away from it. Love it. I love it. Awesome. Can you tell me about a particular memorable or excited exciting time you've led as a as a guide so not your own mm-hmm. personal ones but something you've actually let's say it was yeah it was something that you've guided a hundred times or whatever but it just was very memorable to you because of x reason yeah um the pickets the picket range i did that last summer i think it was last summer it might have been the summer before actually i don't remember the years are blurring together a little bit for me um, but, uh, went to the pickets for the first time ever. And the pickets are something that I've just been like dreaming about doing since I was a little kid. Like I had posters of the pickets on my wall when I was like 15 years old. And, and, um, we just never went there because you'd have to take like a week off from work and you'd have to go in there and be a lot of suffering. You had to be carrying a lot of gear. It'd just be like a really long, hard trip. And so never went there, but I got an opportunity to do that um, with these clients that were, they basically just say, you know, where do you, where do you want to go? Where would you take us if you had your pick? I was like, well, let's, let's go to the pickets. And uh, it really was just like this magical fairyland where unicorns are from. Like it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. It's, where is uh, this? I don't have never even heard of it. It's, um, north of the town of new halem in the north cascades north of highway 20 kind of between Mm -hmm. mount baker on the west and uh like the town of mazama on the east okay i'm pulling it up right here dang that is yeah yeah dude that looks rugged yeah it is it's extremely rugged Uh there's just like just like what you said with the the I mean, is is anything? There's probably some bulgers that mixed in there, huh? Well, that's kind of across from Shuxin, a little bit. It's yeah, it's further east of Shuxin. Um, there is one bulger there, I think Luna. Mm-hmm. So they're not as tall as the some of the bulgers, but they're every bit, if not more, rugged. Yeah, the North Cascades are just so wild, so mm-hmm. wild. It's always the common thing of the pe- people on the PCT love the North Cascades and the Sierra, but some most of them say that they like the North Cascades the most out of all anything on the on the PCT. And I had never understood that until I was in the North Cascades a couple uh-huh. years ago for the first time. And you're right, totally magical. Yeah, it is. It is. There's this on the top of one of these peaks. I remember looking just down the line of this ridge of all these peaks, and it it looks like uh it's like five matterhorns all lined up in a row like mm-hmm. they're as jagged and as sharp and as in- iconic looking as the matterhorn but there's five of them it's just like yeah, yeah. you're just you're just in awe when you're up there just go on for forever yeah w- what was the objective there was it the was that kind of a custom trip that they did mm-hmm. they it was skills 
type of thing. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. They just wanted to, they wanted to elevate their skills to the next level. They had done a lot of scrambling um, and they had just moved to Washington from Colorado. And so they wanted to kind of fill in the gaps of their, of their knowledge and their skills. And so we needed to do something that was pretty well-rounded. So we went out there for five days and we taught them crevasse rescue. We kind of went out there with a loose plan on what peaks we're going to climb. And we ended up climbing two, two of them while we were out there. And um, we actually had to leave early because uh, a bear ate our, a lot of our food when we were gone, despite all of our best efforts to prevent that from happening. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. While you were in camp or what? Or yeah. They... Oh, wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. There you go. There you go, folks. They love that food. Dang. Well, that must have been a great time for them. I bet they still learned just, again, ra- at a rapid pace, custom stuff, exactly what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be curious to see like what they're up to in 2023. Wonder what they got for objectives. Nice mm-hmm. boulders. Uh, I'm gonna try and get them up to some boulders. I've been on a couple of like personal trips, like going on trail runs with with one of them yeah. a couple of times. So, yeah. oh, nice. I generally know what he's up to, but they did so yeah. much driving in Colorado, going around from 14 or 14 or that they spent a lot of time just climbing in the Cascades. Like, like right at Snoqualmie Pass, right where they live. They live really close to the mountains, which is cool. Interesting. So they're like, screw the driving. Then. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. done with the driving. I'm going <laughs> to look at all this gem that I have right next to me. Yeah. Exactly. I'm so jealous of everybody that, that lives up in that area. I mean, like, same with me. I mean, I live two hours from Hood. That's the closest mm-hmm. like, peak to me, basically, right? And mm-hmm. if I go to Hood, I have to stay there at least overnight. So I'm staying yeah. in my car or I'm camping. Like, I can't just go there for the day. Two hours, yeah. it's just it's just too much, and I, I have to make two days out of it. So yeah, I feel it's really sweet that you guys get to do, like, yeah, just those, like, one offers. That's so cool. So now I guess this is a good transition to when I get to when we move to Wyoming. Like I said, we've kind of talked, alluded this a little bit. So we have a trip planned later this summer, and this is kind of like that alpine experience we got uh, the Grand Teton. We're looking at Mount Moran, Gannett Peak, and then some stuff in the Cirque. If we have time to do all that stuff, yeah. that's a lot. Of, that's a big agenda. But yeah. I'll be happy if we can do half that stuff. Uh-huh. I'm completely honest with you. But hey, I'll, I'll shoot for it. I got I got the time off. I can do it. <laughs> so, what would you get? What advice would you give? Knowing me, what, what advice mm-hmm. would you give me for training mm-hmm. for that? And I think one mm-hmm. of them is the exposure piece, right? Yeah, that, that that really is the piece because um, I know that you're fit enough. You're definitely you've got a great workout plan. You're constantly active. Mm-hmm. You're doing a lot of that stuff, so that's not going to be an issue. Um, and really, the technical climbing is because we're doing alpine. When you're doing alpine, we generally scale it back and we're doing easier stuff. Um, and so we're doing like five, six, five, five. I think maybe at at, at hardest we might do a five, eight. I don't remember what our full plan is, but at five eight maximum. So it's not a really hard climbing. Uh, it's just going to be a lot of terrain to cover because we're doing alpine climbing. We're doing lots and lots of. It's not even necessarily pitches, but you're just doing covering a lot of terrain. And so you're gonna we're gonna have to be moving very quickly on easy rock climbing terrain. So it's not trivial. It's it's serious, um, and we're gonna be we're gonna be protected. But it's not like you have a piece of gear every six feet, right? You got a piece of gear like maybe every 40, you know? So 
you don't want to fall. And although falling is unlikely because it's on easy terrain, um, it's it's still possible. And you, most of your protection when you're on alpine climbing is provided by your movement skills. It's not by the rope. So the rope saves your life, but your movement skills prevent you from getting hurt. They prevent you from falling. And so you really want to focus on getting really comfortable with exposure and moving quickly on on exposed technical terrain interesting interesting mm-hmm. so and that so for folks that don't know so obviously this will be like trad climbing traditional mm-hmm. versus sport climbing right which which and tell me if i'm wrong but this is kind of how it works in my, in my head is you do sport climbing because you really want to push your climbing skills and your climbing mm-hmm. grade and you want to be like girl like i can climb a 513 whatever mm-hmm. whatever right but trad climbing is you bring down the climbing but you almost kind of up the risk like you almost kind of up the risk a little bit in terms of like cuz you're relying on the pieces that you're you're putting in there like you're saying you're putting them every 40 feet or so but you reduce the climbing but you're getting more adventure in it because you're like going to these wilder places it it lets you access these like crazy places like the circuit mm-hmm. towers you know that's that's crazy beautiful so but you're bringing the climbing down a little bit so you can get a better adventure type of thing. Would that is that kind of how it works? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, definitely. Um, sport climbing is about the climbing itself, like how hard the climbing is. That's that's the priority. Whereas trad climbing is mostly about the the objective. You know, like there's a really cool feature on that cliff. Like that crack looks very aesthetic. Like I want to climb that crack. So what sort of gear? What type of climbing do I need to do to climb that crack? Or that peak over there looks really majestic. I'm going to climb that specific peak. So what skills and tools do I need in the toolbox to be able to climb that specific peak? And so that's where trad climbing comes into play is because you're going after an objective that is, you know, remote in nature, alpine in nature, wild in nature, and it's not going to have all of the infrastructure in place. It's not going to have, you know, anchors or, or necessarily going to have trails. Um, so you have to, bring the the tools that will allow you to protect that climb and so that's why you need trad gear i love it i i just feel like it opens up just like a brand new world mm-hmm. you. you know because once i feel like you know once you you learn how to backpack that opens up that um that's like the key that unlocks all these doors to like a wider thing like if, if rather than if you're just a car camper or something like that you mm-hmm. now have like extra work. but now trad climbing is another step to where now you're getting on top of these things that you're actually looking at or you're or you're going to these places that you wouldn't normally go go even backpacking maybe but like you want to climb them you know yep. So it's yep. just yeah kind of just opens up and I, it's way more appealing to me than just being a sport climber mm-hmm. so yeah yeah me too that's good to know yeah yeah, yeah. Let's get into some. All right, let's get into these IG questions and we'll wrap it up here. Okay, sounds good. All right, all right. Let's get into <clears throat> boom. Okay, so we have a question from Tiny Giant Hikes. How unfit is too unfit for you to decline a client? And would you alter plans beyond just adjusting times? Yeah, we kind of talked about right. this a little bit, but yeah, yeah, yeah we did, we did. Um, so just reiterate, like the guide service, or if it's an individual guide, is going to do most of that vetting in advance, so that doesn't happen, right? 
because that ruins the trip for everybody else. So they're going to do that most of our vans by asking the clients, you know, what have you done before? What's your, what's your hiking or climbing resume look like? Right. Um, if, and if I'm, if I'm working with a client and we're working towards a specific objective, I give like a training plan, like this is the training plan you got to follow in order to be prepared for this hmm. objective that we're doing. Hmm. Um, but if it's, if it's, if I'm meeting them on this, on the site and or on site at the trailhead, for the first time and uh, maybe they weren't as forthcoming as they should have been with what their fitness level is, or maybe they just didn't quite yeah. understand exactly what the demand was going to be. Um, I, I'll, I'll find out. I'll know that, like I said before, I'll know that within 30 to 60 minutes of, of climbing it. And the reason I know that is because I've climbed the mountain, you know, let's just say it's Mount Baker, I've climbed it probably 25 times. And I know exactly what it's going to feel like, like what, how fast my legs are going to go and how long it's going to take to get to camp. And how, you know, just, I just know that pacing. And so I just go that pace. And if there's somebody in the group who is, we are constantly waiting for stopping to wait for them to catch up, then the likelihood that they're going to be able to make it to the top is really, really low. So mm -hmm. That's, that's how I know. And we'll, we can adjust the objective accordingly. You know, if we know that in advance, we can make different plans for that person. Like if we have two guides, for instance, we can be a little flexible. Maybe one of those guides can take part of the group and they can just teach, you know, really advanced crevasse rescue. We can spend a lot more time on that. So that client gets more, a better education while the rest of the climbers are going to the top. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's always ways to adjust the plan. Um, we don't have there. No guides have a, a rigid way of how they operate. They don't have like, like, um, they don't oper operate robotically. They don't have like all these rules that they have to fit in within how, on how they operate in a, in a group. Um, we have, uh, you know, we have a lot of tools instead of rules. So, we'll adjust our plan. We'll adjust the strategy. Um, we'll adjust the education or the experience depending on the weather and, you know, just the general circumstances of the trip. And that could be weather, that could be the client fitness, that could be mm -hmm. anything. Yeah. So. Awesome. Awesome. So he's always watching folks. He's watching you, he's watching you. <laughs> <laughs> he's got his eye on you. He's got his eye. No, that's good. That's good. Cool. Okay, Jack Cunison, what is a good order of mountains for a beginner to accomplish? And I would say let's do this as if you lived in Portland or Seattle, something around mm -hmm. like that, because mm -hmm. I believe that is where he's from. And yeah, I think that's where a lot of my followers are from as well. So yeah, what would, yeah. You, what would you say for that? Yeah, so assuming we're talking about general mountaineering objectives, right? Because there's all kinds yeah. of different objectives, right? There's... I know he's interested in he's actually doing Shasta in a couple months or something like that. So mm -hmm. I think he's, yeah, he's kind of on that like level. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So um, actually, I have a list of peaks that I would suggest uh, in Washington. I really like Ruth Mountain. Um, nice. It's got like a almost extinct glacier on it, so it's not super intense. And then if you got time, you want to add a little bit of extra on it, you can do the traverse over to Icy Peak. Those are, that's a sweet objective. Um, and then, you know, Sahali Peak, that's a classic. I would probably go via the Key and Save Glacier if you want to get a little bit more glacier experience uh, versus the Sahali Arm. 
Uh, Sulfide Glacier on Shuxton is a really good classic. Uh, East Ridge of El Dorado is another one. Yeah. yeah. So those are all like super classics that you can find everywhere. Um, but I would definitely don't get too sucked into only doing the classics. There's a lot of amazing stuff out there that only reason they're not super classics is because they're hard to get to. How would you? Yeah, exactly. Like El Dorado is way up there for me, dude. I was like, That's I was one of the close like, ones, dude. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it's yeah. freaking up. Actually, we drove past it to get to Sahali, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we yeah, did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my F, dude. It's a long way for me. Yeah. Yeah. What about, I want to come back. I want to put a, 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 actually, I'll just ask you it right now. Oh, Shuxon is one that mm-hmm. I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. What is, yeah, what's that summit like? How how technical is that, say, like in the, in a July or something like that? Yeah, so it's a pretty easy glacier climb, as I'm sure you know, getting to the summit pyramid. And then once you get to the summit pyramid, there's a couple of different routes you can take. One of them is just a class four scramble, like right up to the middle of the pyramid. But there's another um, ridge climb that's like a five four that's I would highly recommend. It's a lot better got some good exposure it's got really solid rock it's fun climbing uh, but it's not hard and you would say that sahali was class four mm, maybe have a fifth class move it's got fifth class exposure that's for sure but maybe like one fifth class move which is and you remember idea. yeah you know which move <laughs> <laughs> You remember, I do yeah. remember. I sat at that for mm-hmm. a good five minutes, talking yeah. myself into it. Yeah, yeah. So when you when you say, sometimes I have a difficult time deciphering the definition fourth class and fifth class. So like when you just said there, you know, fifth, it's a fourth class, but it was fifth class exposure, mm-hmm. right? What is really the difference between fourth and fifth class? They seem very similar to me. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't start using your hands at all until you get into third class, right? So if you're not using your hands, it's not third class. So you get into there, and it's occasional use of hands. And you can look up probably a better description than I'll be able to recall online. Just look up, like, it's in the Freedom of the Hills of Mountaineering. You can look at the descriptions from class one to five. But um, from what I remember, you're not, you're not using your hands until you get into class three. And then when you get in... Uh, class four, you're frequently using your hands like all the time, you're using your hands and knees or hands and feet. And um, as as the exposure goes up and as the, the consequences go up, so does the class, right? So when you get into, when you get into like fifth class, that's where it's like really measure, measuring difficulty, right? So like five, one, five, two, five, three, five, four, so like those those decimal systems, the Yosemite decimal system is a continuation of that fifth class. So once you get into five zero, it just go, kind of goes up into there. And we're strictly talking about difficulty at that point. But until you get into fifth class, you're talking about difficulty and exposure and likelihood of, of falling. So like fourth class is you might have pretty high consequences, but your likelihood of falling is really, really low because it's super easy terrain. It's like climbing a ladder, right? Whereas third class is like not really an exposure. It's just your occasional use of your hands. Yeah. I think does that, does that answer your question? I think Sahali's a five one. Okay, sure. 
<laughs> five one yeah 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 well you know that's a good point because like you can have a climb that is it's going to have a rating even if it only has one move like you might have a climb that has one five nine move on the entire thing that route is rated five nine even if the entire rest of the route oh, is like oh interesting five okay. two right it's going to be rated by the hardest move that's interesting that's actually mm-hmm. interesting to know okay cool good to know and what what would you say what would you say a good progression is for the Cascade Volcanoes? What recommendation okay. would you give? I'll go back to that in a second. The scale though, oh, once you once you get into the fives, um, it is not objective. It is extremely subjective, right? One person might rate it five six, another one per- person might rate it five eight. Maybe one person is really comfortable exposure, another one isn't comfortable exposure. So those are all factors that go into it. Maybe someone is like five six, or and the other one is like six five. You know, they're a foot difference in height. That can change things as well. So it's very, very subjective rating scale. So take it with a grain of salt. Totally, I have, I have figured that out. I mean, when I was in Colorado, we were climbing outside of Golden, and it was this five eight. I couldn't do it, dude. Mm-hmm. I don't, I could, I, it was, you know, the parts that I struggle with are those arets where they come out, mm-hmm. they jut out and then I have to climb the face, but there's a bolt, like what kind of above. And then I feel like I'm going to deck yep. if I fall, if I screw that up, but you kind of have like this foothold that you really have to trust to get your reach to that bolt. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there was like two routes like that recently this fall that I did. And I kind of wigged myself out on both of those. So I've been taking some practice falls at the gym and, you know, we did two practice <laughs> falls helps. yesterday at the gym. So that did help. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff does help. So, yeah. Well, it yeah. depends on when it was put up too. That's a factor and who put it up. Um, so, you know, in the early days of climbing, they used to think that five ten. you know, they were climbing in mountaineering boots, right? They didn't have rock shoes at this time when they first started the Yosemite decimal system. And so they made all these ratings with the idea that 510 was as high as it was going to go. So if you're, if you're imagining 510 being as hard as anyone can possibly climb ever, and you're rating your climb, you're going to do it relative to that 510 mark. And so that is a huge factor in when and how these things got rated. So if it was, if it was put up in the like sixties, it's probably going to be a pretty stiff climb. And then the other thing that matters is is who put it up. Some of these guys were giants, like like Leighton Core, for instance. Anytime I get on one of his routes, I'm terrified because it's like going to be way harder than I have bargained for, for sure. So, <laughs> so true, man. That that is true, and that is kind of the tricky part about climbing. Whereas, like you know, running, ultra running, or whatever, you have a distance. It's always going to be that distance. 100 mm-hmm. miles or it's 50 mm-hmm. miles or whatever man it's that distance yep. climbing is like you read all the i read all these trip reports before i go some people are like exactly what you're saying oh mm-hmm. it's this mm-hmm. it was that you don't need a wrap oh you do need a wrap and like oh it makes your head spin sometimes so mm-hmm. i suppose it just kind of you get that experience as you go on and, and kind of get get more into that scene so yeah yeah so back yeah. to the volcanoes yeah yeah, the volcano. What would be the volcano progression? Because I think that's what he might be going for uh, as he's starting to do Shasta. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, St. Helens is probably the the shortest and the easiest of the volcanoes, so I'll probably go for that one first. 
Uh, and then after that, I'd probably go for Adam's second because it doesn't, it's non-glaciated also. So, or at least the standard South route is non-glaciated. So you can go up that without having to have a rope. Um, and then after that, I would probably go for Baker. Um, and then I would yeah. probably glacier glacier peak is probably harder than Rainier. So I'd probably do that last if you're trying to go in order of how hard they are. Um, but takeaway for that question is don't get lured into just climbing the volcanoes because mm -hmm. they're, they're big slogs. And the view from Rainier, for instance, is like the view from a seven or for, from a triple seven, you know, it looks the same. Um, it's better the view, the best view Rainier is the one looking at Rainier rather than from it. Uh, and I think I've found personally that the most rewarding experiences are in the, the jagged craggy peaks in the North Cascades and not so much in the, in the volcanoes. So yeah, you're going to do them because they're prominent and you look at them every day when you commute to work. So yes, absolutely do them, but don't stop there. I love that. So just because you did all of the tallest cascade volcanoes, yeah. you can expand your skills on these actually probably a lot. Well, yeah, harder peaks, mm -hmm. more challenging type peaks where you're not going to see as many people and you're going to learn a lot more skills or mm -hmm. need more skills to do that. Yeah. How is Glacier Peak? But So Glacier Peak's a little bit harder than, well, that's it's harder. like middle of freaking nowhere, right? Yeah. It's double the mileage of Rainier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're right. Rainier is a slot. And I, to be completely honest with you, I don't even remember the view from Rainier because we started at 10 p.m. or 9.30 p.m. Went all night. Got up there and I was so altitude sick. I was just like, I was just like, I don't know, bro. And yeah. then you had to go past that big, down that big crater and up to the side. I'm like, this is so stupid. And I was just like so mad. And uh, yeah, but I mean, it's cool to say that you did it for sure. Yeah, dude, let's go. Let's go do it again. We'll just, yeah, let's do it again no. in a day. Let's do it, go, do it in a you know 12 hour period. That'll be way it's more hilarious. fun for you. It's hilarious because I called Josh the, before I did Rainier for some beta and he's just like, oh yeah, I would never. He's just like, I, I, it's not that fun. It's just a slog. It's, I wouldn't really want to do it again <laughs> type of thing. And I, I, I totally have that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really like, interesting climb. I feel like such a curmudgeon about Rainier. Don't, don't take it that way. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a beautiful, it's totally yeah. a beautiful mountain. And actually the, the crevasse, the crevasses were, I mean, that made it worth it. That was really cool. I mean, I could have, why don't you build a house in one of those crevasses? I mean, it's got right. a space in there. It's probably, no kidding. you can hang some p paintings and put some ice screws in the walls and hang things there. <laughs> <laughs> they were massive, dude. Yeah, they're oh. pretty wild. You know, it'd be yeah. fun. You just gave me an idea. We could do like this really cool, like Airbnb experience. We could get a portal, <laughs> a portal edge, right? Get a portal edge and we could attach it to the wall of a crevasse and you could spend the night in the crevasse. You heard it here first. You right. heard it here first. That is so <laughs> funny, dude. How much would you charge though? Oh, how much is four seasons? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Dude, that would really be the question. How much would you I could see it being really premium or like dirt cheap. <laughs> it have, yeah. It's nowhere in the meat. You could choose your lane, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, okay. Yeah, the takeaway for Anier is like I, it would it would sadden me to see somebody do all this training and buy all this gear, go to the top of Rainier just to cross it off a bucket list, and then never climb another mountain again for the rest of their life. Yeah. And sadly, that happens a lot. 
That happens a lot really? for that mountain in particular. Yeah, a lot of people just do Rainier and never do anything else because they've been looking at it every day, every time they go to work for years, mm. and it's on their bucket list. Um, but they never really get to truly experience mountaineering because Rainier, I don't think, is a very it's not a fair representation of mountaineering. It make yeah. it leaves you with the impression that it's all pain. And there's a reward at the top, but it's all, it's more pain. You know, like the ratio of the ratio yeah. is just really challenging. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The bowling alley was pretty interesting. On hood. Is that, is that what it's called? The bowling alley on Rainier? Oh, yeah. I think that's just a nickname for the disappointment cleaver. Mm, yeah. Okay. So it was just like where it was all of those rocky. Yeah freaking thing there and we actually coming down we kind of got off track and we we're like almost kind of like cliffed out i don't know why we went like straight down straight straight down like the fall line down and then we were going to try to cross the slope but we had already taken our crampons off and i was like looking at it i'm like dude i don't we're either gonna have to put our crampons on and go across the slope which is kind of sketchy and there's not a very good fall on this or we're gonna have to climb all the way back up and then go over. And that's exactly what we ended up doing. But this is kind of one of those things where you're so tired. You're just like, I don't even know like what's happening right now type of thing. But yeah, Rainier's fun, but okay. Let's see. We got two more. Theo Claffy, any near death experiences? <laughs> I'm sure several. This question yes. comes, yeah. I, yeah. I was going to say, I'm sure there's gotta be several. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's the several. one that stands out the most to you, I guess. Well, they're they're all rockfall related. Um, Interesting. Every every single one of them is rockfall related. Yeah. Wear those helmets, folks. Yep. Wear those helmets for sure. I like. I can almost like name each one of them. Really? Like there's yeah there's like you know there's like the refrigerator rockfall, and then there's the like the gas station rockfall, because it's the rock that fell was the size of a gas station. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Yeah. Um, so, all right, I'll do, maybe I'll do the closest call. And that was, I was in the Alps climbing in Switzerland on this multi-pitch climb with my wife. And I was, I was leading on like easy terrain and I go to like mantle. Mantling is when you put your hands up on a rock and then you try and get your foot up onto that same rock and climb up on top of that. And so I was doing that and that rock kind of like shifted and then slid on the slab that I was standing on onto my foot and it kind of pinned my foot. Mm. So I couldn't move, but at least the rock was stopped. What? And I yelled down to my wife that you now there's this block and it's going to fall and you're like right below it. And so she like, gets into position where she can hide underneath this overhang. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm realizing that there's, if, if I let it go, it's going to like cut the rope that I'm tied to, or it's going to pull me off. Whoa, one of the two, it's dude. going to do that if I let it go. Right. So I had to like, look around for, yep. <laughs> I had to look around for like whatever I could reach. Cause I couldn't move around very much. And I found like this kind of, pathetic gear placement so i plug in a cam and i clip into it and then i have to i untie from the two ropes that i'm tied into and then just chuck them as far away as i possibly could and um 
yelled onto her. She's ready. I let the rock go and like tumbles down. And she's like trying to figure out like, where's she going to go? She's going to dodge right or left to dodge this rock. And she tries to jump out of the way and her foot slips. And this thing hits her right in the hip, like right in the, just the meatiest part of her hip. No way. And I can just like hear her screaming down below. And I thought I killed her. It was like super dramatic. Um, so I ended up like scrambling down to where I threw the rope and I tied it off and built a new anchor, propelled down to her and checked her out. And she was, you know, okay. She didn't have any like broken bones or anything, but she was in a lot of pain. She had, so we uh, got her out, stayed the night in the hut and we had to hike out the next day and go to the hospital. But um, she ended up being okay, oh. but it was a close call. Wow. And, and then it's like, you don't even know, is, was there like, my concern too would be, is there other climbers below me too? We knew there were Yeah, fortunately, we knew they weren't. Wow. So so basically, you untied from the main rope, but you mm-hmm. did a cam into like somewhere, you basically attached like your pass to mm-hmm. the cam. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. So you're just hanging there by your cam, mm-hmm. and, or not hanging there, but you're just attached, you know, secured, I guess. Well, fortunately, it was really easy terrain, so I could just basically stand on it. Mm -hmm. It was like fourth-class, fourth-class terrain. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty sure that I could just pull my foot out and then step aside, and then the rock would would fall out. Um, But not a great situation. Okay, so that's actually really interesting because I do think that me and most people always think that – I mean, and there is, of course, plenty of accidents that happen this way from falling, but – would you say that there's more probably due to rock fall? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you ask me what the number one thing I'm afraid of in the mountains, it's rock fall. Yeah. But every, pretty much all the danger in the mountains, it's either falling off the mountain, falling in the mountain, or the mountain falling on you. Those are the three things that can happen. Yeah, no kidding. But definitely the mountain falling on you is what I've experienced to be the most dangerous. Wow. Wow. That is some... Um intense stuff man that is intense wow 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 wow. cool okay final question here is from brad dosh actually i met him at rainier when i got done with it oh nice (laughs) i was a zombie pretty much he said he said and i don't know if you've done this or not i've never even heard of this but what's the route like for east i guess east mcmillan Mm -hmm. east mcmillan spire yeah um he must be asking, I don't know, maybe he's looked at my Instagram and saw that I was climbing that, but that's actually the route that I did when I was in the pickets with, uh, with my, with my clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, the route's amazing. Uh, the, the view from the summit of East McMillan is the best view I've seen in the Cascades. It's incredible. So that's wow. the view I was describing earlier. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. That's a, bold state- that's a bold statement right there. I don't make it lightly. I really don't. I know. I know you don't. Yeah, because the one off of Sahali is pretty pretty sweet, I thought. Yeah. Well, the, that one is pretty sweet. The, the second best view I've ever seen the Cascades was from the summit of Ostera Peak, which is on the Inspiration Traverse. Mm, okay. Really, it's really close competitor. Um, but anyway, the route, what the route is like... Um, it's it's a long, really challenging approach to get in there, but it's definitely worth it. I wouldn't go in there unless you're going to either spend four or five days there and get comfy, or if you're going to get just like 
go blast it out in a day. Um, but you're going to have to like think more like a trail runner. Um, yeah. you do that. And I probably, if I was going to go there and do it in a day, I'd probably be like West of McMillan because it's just a class three scramble. and I wouldn't have to bring any technical gear. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to the route, um, it's like pretty easy rock climbing. It's not super challenging. Uh, the route finding is what is most challenging. And so for that, I would go and download as much beta photos as you can from online and from every angle that you can find them. And then from the basin where you're camping, make sure you're, you're looking at your, your beta photo and comparing it with the route from like long distance at camp, medium distance as you're approaching it, and then right at the base of the climb. So you can make sure that you're starting on route. Um, we were able to stay on route pretty good, but that's only because I had a lot of like beta photos to follow. So that's okay. That actually sparks a, a, a side question for me is when you are researching some of these maybe places, boulders or something that you haven't done before, what's, what is, what's your research process look like for that? What are the sites that you use? Mm-hmm. And what, what notes are you taking by? It sounds like you're taking, you're taking screenshots of pictures of mm-hmm. routes and things like that. Super smart, especially because obviously, as you know, you're not going to have service up there. So you got to have them on your phone somehow. Mm-hmm. You do. Like mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, we're really lucky to be living in the time that we're living in right now because we have access to the GPS tracks and everything. I remember when I was first started climbing, all we had was paper topo maps. Uh, we didn't have mobile phones, you know, we had GPSs, but you didn't have maps on the GPS. Like right. those the GPS, eventually we had, we had those, but, there was no map on them. So you'd have to like plug in the coordinate and then just like walk the direction of that coordinate. But you know, like what if there's a cliff between you and where you're going? It's like, right. It was just a lot harder to navigate. And so because of that, we did a lot of the same things over and over again, because we knew the routes. Um, but now we have the technology so advanced that we can uh, utilize that. Um, so what I do is if it's a rock climb, I definitely need to have route photos that other people have taken. Those That's really, really helpful. Um, it was particularly if it's a harder route, because if it's a harder route, there's more or less like one way you can go, right? You can't just go up the East face, you know, that's not description enough. If it's an easy climb, you can get away with some vague, um, directions, but if it's a harder climb, you've got to know where you're going. So getting route photos, reading the route description, taking screenshots of that. So you have it like, like you said, when you don't have service, and if it's a non-technical thing, um, the, the GPS coordinates or the track is the most important thing. And I get those from um, peakbagger.com. I'll just go on, I'll Google search. Go mm-hmm. Interesting. I'll just Google search GPX and then the name of the peak. And peak bagger is usually like the first or second hit. And then I click on that. And then the left-hand side, you're going to see a bunch of trip reports. Right. And there's, there's going to be, let's say hypothetically, there's 20 different trip reports. Maybe seven or eight of them are going to have GPX in it. And it's going to say, it's going to say the name of the trip and then it's going to say GPX. So you only click on the GPX ones. And then when you do that, make sure that it was a successful attempt. They actually made it to the summit because it may not have the entire track. Also check the date that it was done. Cause if it was done in the winter time and you're going to be climbing in the summertime, it might be taking you through like some heavily vegetated terrain where it's not going to be passable when you're there because you're in the summertime. So look at when that track was made as well, if you're going to do it that way. So I download the GPX track onto my phone and I use like either Caltopo or Gaia 
to, to navigate that route. But when I have that, I'm pretty confident that I'm not going to get lost because it's just so yeah. it's, it's been so reliable. Right. I agree. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So that's probably what our MO will be for Wyoming. I'm guessing mm-hmm. kind of, kind of that, that, that type of, do you ever use mountain project? I do. Yeah. For, for rock climbs. Mm-hmm. So like everything that we're going to be doing, you know, is an alpine rock climb and they're all classics. So there's tons of information online and we'll probably get most of our information from mountain project for what you and I are going to be doing. Got it. Okay. Sweet. So we'll just get GPX files for the approaches. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That'll be sweet. Awesome, man. Well, this was dude, so much gold here. I mean, so much value for people that, are going to get into mountaineering or even for people that have been doing mountaineering. I mean, there's so much to learn from this type of stuff. And so Josh was kind of like your personal mentor for the day. I I love it. That was, that was so nice of you. So incredible, incredible time. What, where can they, let's say they want to book a book, a route with you, a climb Mm -hmm. with you or something like that. What, how would they do that? They can just reach out to me. I don't know what information you're going to provide, but they can look me up on Instagram or, or whatever, and I'll, I'll set it yep. up for them. Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll put his username in the show notes at Mountain Josh, I think. I think it's Mountain Josh or Mountain Josh 87. I don't remember. Okay. Yep. On Instagram. Yep. So we'll put that in the show notes. So if you want to book something with Josh, go right ahead. And... What's the, and you work for the pro guiding, was it the pro guiding? Pro guide service. Pro guide service. Yep. So that's, mm-hmm. that's, I guess, another way if you, if you wanted to just reach out to them and say that you wanted to book Josh or something like that. But any, any closing, anything closing or anything that I missed that you want to say or anything like that? Uh, yeah, let's go the philosophical route and stay and just say, be, be present in the mountains. Yeah, uh, easier easier said than done, right, type of thing. Oh, it's hard. It's hard. It's a constant practice for me. I have to constantly remind myself to do that. But that's the most important thing, you know. You can't relive the climbs we did yesterday. We're not guaranteed tomorrow's. So, yeah, it's all we got. I love it. I love it. Well, great way to end. We'll put a comma on this one because we'll be getting into some more chats soon. And that's that's, that's the podcast for today. Sweet. Cool. All right. Hey, good chatting with you, man. That was fun. Sweet.